It's Josh Rubin here in New York, and uh, we're joined with uh, none other than Leonard Steinberg of Compass. And uh, Leonard, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so Leonard, as, as we all know, is one of the founding members of uh, Compass, uh, which has grown exponentially in recent years. Um, Leonard, uh, I've known for my entire career and uh, always looked up to and admired um, for his industry savvy, intelligence, and overall experience. Um, you know, this is one of the most challenging times in, in my career, certainly, Leonard. Uh, how about you? I would say, I think if these are not challenging times, then we'll never experience challenging times. Although I always say it could be much worse. It really could be much worse. I don't know how much worse, but I think it could be worse. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I've been speaking with some of our colleagues around the country from Florida to Texas and uh, out in California. Uh, spoke to Tim Smith of Coldwell Banker and Christoph True in Beverly Hills the other day. And, uh, you know, they, they told me that, you know, their markets are uh, sort of sluggish, but still active. Uh, and the same goes for Florida and Texas. So if anything, that gives me assurance that, you know, we'll, we'll see activity in New York. It's really just a question of when. Right. I think we're just in a pause moment right now. And it's historical because we've never, ever had a complete stoppage of showings for an extended period of time. That's never, ever happened. So I think this is very new for everyone. That's right. You know, the worst case scenario, people are forecasting that it's going to be similar to 2008. Best case scenario, it's going to be similar to the first quarter of 2002 following the attacks of September 11th. Um, where was uh, your business as, a, as, as the Steinberg team um, sort of leading up to, say, March 1st of uh, 2020? So what, what were you seeing uh, professionally just in, in, as far as the team is concerned in January and February? We really didn't have the best January and February, I will say. I know a lot of people had outstanding Januaries and Februaries, but we don't necessarily always follow the trend. Um, I felt that there was momentum building up and I felt that there were real buyers in the marketplace and we were heading in the direction of some outstanding deals actually, but they hadn't really happened much yet in January and February. I felt the market for us was really gonna kick in in March. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was seeing the same thing, a little bit of sluggishness in, in, uh, in January and February, and, and we were just ramping up, just ramping up in March. And, um, you know, we had some very interesting listings coming our way, and they were preparing to be staged. And I was really very excited, really up until uh, Friday, March 13th. And I, I was thinking that this was, this was going to sort of pass us by like a hurricane that was on the horizon that could really have a severe impact to your region, uh, but you just kind of skirt it. And then it was, it was the, that evening, Friday, March 13th, when it, when it all of a sudden, it just hit me because I had a sister-in-law who, who works for the CDC and, and she was sort of sending us reports from the front line as to how severe things really were. And the media wasn't reporting on that yet. Um, so I, I've only been in the city once in the last say five or six weeks. Where Friday the 13th, they said. <laughs> that's, that's very true. And, you know, Jonathan Miller, who I was speaking with the other day, uh, mentioned that, uh, uh, you know, it was Wednesday, March 11th, that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson came out and announced that uh, they were on location in Australia and been, been diagnosed with, uh, with COVID. Um, and then it was uh, Sunday when the Fed came out with their uh, first rate cut, um, and and so he was he's referring to that period of being Hanks to Banks, um, and so that's really when things all of a sudden took a took a severe turn 
and became much more serious. Yep. So yep. you're in an interesting position, Leonard, because not just because you're still in production uh, here in New York, but you're also uh, plugged in uh, in a very meaningful way uh, within Compass. So you're, you're not just looking at you know your production, but you're also looking at Compass's production as a whole. So can you talk to us a little bit about about Compass and what it was doing sort of January and February? Well, January and February were actually outstanding months for the company, and we were really on this amazing and exciting trajectory for a very, very strong spring. It felt like spring markets had started up a lot sooner yeah. than they usually do around the country, and especially on the West Coast, Texas, Nashville. Uh, you know, across the board, there were really optimistic signs that this was going to be a very strong spring. But it really speaks, uh, being in this position where I see all these multiple markets around the country speaks again, not just to the city by city, state by state uh, specialization of real estate, but really neighborhood by neighborhood, because we have over, I think, 350 offices around the country now. And it's amazing what happens in one neighborhood versus another, versus a city to another city, state to state. So as you know, we've always said real estate is ultra-localized, I think now we can uh, conclude that even more so. Yeah, it's really interesting. There are all these regional markets, but with that, there are all these sort of micro-markets within the regions. And so we see you know, markets like Philadelphia. You know, in Philadelphia, you have, you know, sort of where I grew up, you have the Northeast, you have the suburbs, and, and then you have the main line, and then you have the city itself. And within the city, there you know there are even different neighborhoods that are uh, more popular and, and, and trade at different levels. Um, whereas in Manhattan, you know we have that too. We we sort of have you know regions in terms of you know Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and then within Manhattan we have these neighborhoods as we call them. But they're they're really micro markets, aren't they? Yeah, I mean look at at Chelsea. People who live in West Chelsea would never live in Central Chelsea and vice versa, and they're butting one another. They're within right. minutes of walking distance from one another, and they're so different. Yeah. So I do think the ultra-localization of real estate, even in New York, magnified building to building, block yeah. by block, apartment to apartment. It's really astounding, and that's why I'm always very, very um, weary of averages, because I think they are in no way any kind of true reflection of data that has any meaningful insight for consumers. That's true. You know, that's, that's really interesting that you point that out. It's, it's building to building. So the Upper East Side, for instance, you can have one building that is uh, exceptionally well regarded. Um, uh, some of these buildings along Park Avenue, as you know, you and I have both uh, shown in them, both sold in them. You can't finance $1 of the purchase price. So now you have to show up with, you know, multiple millions of dollars. I did a deal on one of them at 550 Park Avenue where you cannot finance one penny. I did it. I sold it for nine and a half million dollars. And not only that, but you have to have multiples of the purchase price and post-closing liquidity. So I'm pointing that out because right across the street, you have 465 Park Avenue where you can, you know, finance no problem. And, um, uh, it's it's not as well regarded. They're literally right across the street from one another, and yet one is very prestigious and pre-war, uh, aristocratic, but it's it's well run, and uh, the the people there are lovely, of course. And then across the street, it's it, they're almost like country clubs in a way. Well, that and also they provide in that mechanism that sounds insane to all of us. 
They also provide an insurance policy to owners in the building that whoever's buying in the building can really, really afford to live there. Yeah. And there's something kind of magical in that at a moment like this here. During normal times, it seems really like crazy, but now it feels like, hmm, maybe they're onto something. There is value to that as well. The other one is it does uh, depress pricing a little bit. And in that lies some value. So not only are you buying into these buildings at a lower cost basis, often, not always, um, but you're also surrounded by people who can truly afford to live there. And that has value to an asset. No, that's, that's very, very true. It's, it's kind of like a car, right? Or a, a piece of art. We're talking about these, these rare assets that appreciate in value because they're so difficult to purchase. Absolutely. There's always something to be said about quality and scarcity in real estate. And uh, the two best real estate purchases I've ever made in my life, one was after 9-11 and the other one was after the 2008-2009 um, Great Recession, which where I'd gone to contract just before the recession hit at the peak of the market. I didn't renegotiate one dollar on that contract and both of those deals at a time where everyone said, you're crazy to buy, the market's going to go spiraling down, you're an idiot, et cetera, et cetera. Those were the two best purchases I've ever made in real estate because my obsession was quality, not price. Wow. That's remarkable. So, so your focus has always been on quality. Always. And, and not so much on the value of the underlying asset. I'm sure that's a part of the component. It matters. Yeah. I, think, I think it always matters. And I think if you can get a good deal on something that's quality, that's great. If you are getting a great price on a bad piece of real estate, you still own a bad piece of real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Something that, let's say, you know, faces a wall or is in a you know, suboptimal location. Uh, I, there's a client of mine who I sold uh, a space for in Tribeca a few years ago. He timed the market pretty well. He sort of, sort of saw the overall direction, um, you know, post uh, 2016. And I believe it was in 2018, we sold his loft on Franklin Street. Great location, right across the street from uh, where uh, Taylor Swift lives. This is at 150 Franklin Street. Um, funky elevator, I'm sure you've been in the building before. But we sold that loft for just a tick over $4 million. The market continued to soften. And of course, now that we're in the middle of this pandemic, he's comfortably uh, settled in Austin, Texas, he called me and said, hey, I'm thinking about returning to the city. This seems like a pretty good opportunity. Let me know if you can find, you know, any other, any space for me. So he sent me something yesterday, in fact. He said, hey, uh, this particular listing uh, has had a number of price cuts, most recently, just a couple days ago. It's now down to, I think he said it was $300,000 for a two-bedroom on 57th and 7th. Uh, it's a building at 100 West 57th Street. I didn't even have to look it up. I said, oh yeah, that's a land lease. So, you know, some land leases are well managed, some aren't. Um, I'm not gonna say stay away from all land leases, but you know, they come with, with their set of, of issues. And so that's why that's a great example of an asset that is, you know, not of such great quality. Most times I've bought a sweater at Berg of Goodman deeply discounted at a sale. I've owned a sweater that didn't fit properly. <laughs> You've got to be careful with bargains. Right. Bargains can be very dangerous. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, there's a reason that, you know, these, these uh, opportunities exist at these bargain basement prices. And sometimes you have to do a little bit more due diligence just to better understand that. Well, the other interesting point you bring up there is at 100 um, West 57, basically across the street, 
the pricing is an entirely different world. And that again speaks to the hyper ultra localization of real estate, pricing, valuation, and a whole host of other considerations um, from an investment perspective. I do have a feel at a moment like this year, the investment perspective of real estate is very, very important, it always is. But even maybe more meaningful is the quality of life that you uh, derive from your living environment. And I think I've spoken to several people over the last few weeks who've said, geez, I feel like such an idiot. I wanted to buy a home for the last two, three years and I was waiting for this moment to get a good price and I probably will buy something now at a great price. But I could be, number one, enjoying a much better quality of life right now in this difficult time. More importantly, two or three years have come and gone and I've lost those two or three years of enjoyment of my hard labors because at the end of the day, this moment is reminding us of the critical component of life and that is time is the last luxury. And every day that goes by is one less day you have of living. And living in a beautiful, comfortable home right now is something that has been messaged to 8 billion people around the world. And it's kind of unbelievable public relations for the real estate industry. It's remarkable, isn't it, Leonard? You know, what you're referring to is what I call the intrinsic value of life, right? Because intrinsic value by definition is, is you know, really what we're able to enjoy within this context of our lives. So, you know, the more time that one spends on, you know, not doing what they're setting out to achieve is the less value that they're able to get from what they're setting out to gain. So, I, and you know, it's the one asset, you know, real estate is the one asset, especially if it's a primary residence or a secondary residence, that you can actually enjoy the asset. And granted, it may not make as much money as buying Netflix stock for two dollars. But at the same time, you could also buy another stock at $10 that's worth 50 cents today. So the advantage of it being a combined asset and essential need really speaks to a value that uh, no other investment can uh, address. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And it's almost a part of, you know, diversification play. I, I'm sure you've seen it with your clients. I know I have with mine. People show up to the seller and, and in some cases to the co-op board saying, hey, I'm not financing anything. Why? Because they're actually taking a loan against their portfolio. And the rates that your brokerage might charge you, Morgan Stanley, for instance, charged a client of mine uh, about a year and a half ago, I think it was one, one and three quarter points on uh, you know, sort of 10 or $12 million loan. So it, it's, it's pretty interesting what you can do as far, as far as your portfolio is concerned and, and looking at these assets within Manhattan um, as part of diversification. Yep. Look, I think right now as well, there are extraordinary opportunities across the board, not just in buying, but for, from an estate planning perspective right now, these assets that are, according to the world, devalued may have tremendous value to estate planning and setting valuation as of right now, rather than six months or a year from now or a year ago where the assets may have been worth a lot more. And I do think we have to be reminded of this massive transfer of wealth that is about to hit us in a sizable way. It's already hit town and we felt it tremendously across the board with uh, parents and grandparents buying or helping finance the purchase of children, not just kids of billionaires and millionaires, but 50, 100, $200,000, which is a lot of money, but not millions, can be extraordinarily meaningful in the difference between being able to or not being able to purchase a property. That's and right. 
this is going to multiply over time. But right now, at this moment where assets are somewhat deflated in value, this is a great um, opportunity for a lot of wealthier families to do all sorts of things that will have long-term uh, benefit to them. Yeah. So, Leonard, going forward, uh, you know, a lot of people want to know, well, is the market going to be the same? Is it going to be higher? Is it going to be lower? And, you know, given all of your years of experience and your unique position uh, within a fantastically uh, positioned company, what do you see happening once the stay-at-home order is lifted? But not only that, once we really get back to a semblance of normalcy, which obviously is not going to happen right away. Look, I think first and foremost, the only certainty about all markets is that they change. And we're going to be heading into a different market with change. Just the way had you flown on September um, 5th, 2001, the experience to go through the airport to get onto your plane was entirely different to what it was on October 5th of 2001. Today, we don't even think about September 1st, 2001, because we have a new normal. There will be new normals that are established right now. They'll vary dramatically from city to city, state to state, building to building, neighborhood to neighborhood. But each environment is going to have, adjust, have to adjust to a new normal to make the consumer feel safe and calm and also um, protect them from potential catching a very dangerous virus. Uh, but more importantly, all these things take time and it'll take a bit of time to number one, get over the shock of what has happened. It'll take even more time to grieve what has happened because remember there's been a lot of people that have been, uh, you know, have died, have been very seriously ill, who have post illness uh, conditions that are gonna be pretty serious, who have conditions health-wise that have been put on hold because of this. And then more importantly, I would say, or as importantly, a lot of people have lost a lot of wealth and some have recouped some of that wealth, but others have depleted savings and some have lost jobs. And this all will take time to uh, readjust to. I do think there are so many unknowns though, and we're all gonna have to adjust as things uh, change across the next few weeks and months. But I think uh, the biggest challenge we have is our impatience, that this is a moment where we have to exercise some patience, something that keeps diminishing and has diminished over the last you know, five years, even more so than ever before, where we expect everything to return to normal with the flip of a switch, and that's not going to happen. So I think we have to adjust to these new normals over time, and it'll be different from region to region. And we will get back to a new normal, and I'm hopeful, extremely hopeful, that the new normal will be better. So I do think out of adversity comes intelligence, insight, and data that'll have great value to us as a society, and as a profession in real estate to be better at what we do. Yeah, you know, so many people in our business are focused on just doing the transaction and moving on and doing the transaction in such a way that, you know, books are written about us in, a, you know, less than flattering light, i.e. Freakonomics, where their theory is that we as real estate professionals just want to price something as low as possible to do the deal as quickly as possible and simply move on to the next transaction. And you can't blame people for writing books like that when you see the actions and behaviors of some agents. Yeah. So that reputation, unfortunately, is earned. It's not punishment. It's, it's an earned reputation, and it's a terrible disservice that a few agents do at the expense of the entire profession.
Yeah, you, know, you raise a very good point. So, so, so few people in our profession have the patience enough to do what is really essential to our success, which is to build relationships first. And when you build relationships first, then you're going to receive and you're going to give and get. It's a two-way street of trust. And trust is really the currency of any successful relationship, right? And yeah. so the two sort of go hand in hand. And with the relationship and the trust comes a lifelong bond. And some of the people, in fact, I, I look at many of the people that I work with as family. And what I want my mother, my sister, my brother, my father, my son, my daughter, etc., you know, living in these conditions, whether it be, you know, East New York. I had a conversation with a client of mine this morning who's selling an apartment in the city. She wants to move in with her daughter who already lives in Brooklyn, so is more familiar with the nuances of the neighborhoods and the blocks within them, and is talking about things that are, you know, Crown Heights on the cusp of East New York. And I had to tell her, I said, you know, yes, these areas are gentrifying, and yes, these values are attractive, but, but there's a reason, as we discussed earlier. And so, you know, with that, you know, comes the trust that I'm not just looking to sell her the first house that fits her needs, but to make sure that it's the right move for her for the next, you know, 10 or more years of her life. Well, absolutely. I think the, uh, the transaction in real estate is an expensive one. There's no questioning about that. When it's viewed in the context of a transaction, but when it is viewed in the context of a lifetime of advisory, then it all of a sudden becomes a very good deal. Because if you can get a lifetime of advisory around your real estate and you're just paying for one or two or three or four transactions throughout that lifetime, then the cost per um, year of service diminishes dramatically and becomes actually a very, very good um, value add to the consumer. But then again, it all depends on the professionalism of the agent. If an agent is intelligent and can provide real insights and help the consumer disseminate that which is important and not important and go through the whole psycholo psychological profiling that we do on a daily basis that adds real value to the consumer, then that's invaluable. It's when it's just transactional that it becomes something that one would think a robot at some point can replace. Yeah, and so you know, with that, going into the future, you know, putting values aside, do you see any, do you see any specific uh, innovations coming from you know, these last two months where we've been sort of at home and forced to, um, you know, think outside of the box as to, you know, both how we can show property, how we can get listings, how we can guide our clients? I think for me, um, I, I will say Compass as a company was very, very, very tuned into remote conferencing and virtual conferencing since I started five and a half years ago. So none of this is really very new to us. Although I must say having dinner with friends via Zoom is very new to us. But I do think if as a luxury marketer, the one thing I am seeing in the sphere of marketing right now that's innovative is the concept of a virtual showing, which is really not innovative at all. It's been around for decades with new development. What I found really um, disheartening actually was this urgent desire to show property immediately, you know, this urgency. And in doing so, forgetting that we are the marketers of very expensive product that needs to be showcased exquisitely at all times. And then I saw a lot of these join us for a virtual open house and someone took their camera and toured you through an apartment. And for the first time in my life, I knew what it was like to attend an open house dead drunk. <laughs> who, wants to, who wants to look at property 
dead drunk because that's the way it was presented with those visuals. We have to control the visuals to make them pleasurable. And I do think that is where our biggest challenge arrives now and that we've been awakened to the need for outstanding moving visuals that tour you through a property rather than just highlight a few little moments, but ones that actually give you a real tour through the property, but that are aspirational. The footage that I've seen of some of the most beautiful apartments that I know that look hideous now, it's terrible marketing, yeah. terrible marketing. Yeah, so absolutely. I do think we owe that respect to everything that we're marketing because let's face it, $250,000, $300,000 is a fortune to that buyer, as is $100 million to that buyer. It's a luxury for both. So to diminish the low price property is like, ah, oh, that's only $2 million. How many times have you heard that? It's embarrassing. It's only $2 million. Like that agent has $2 million in their pocket or their bank account, probably not even a fraction thereof. So yeah. I think we have to owe the consumer the respect uniformly across the board to show that we understand this is a luxury. This is very, very, very rarefied pr product we are marketing and we should treat it accordingly. These times have taught me that a lot of virtual touring is horrible and needs a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And you, you raise an interesting point in saying that, you know, everyone deserves the same level of service, whether they're buying or selling a $200,000 home or buying or selling a $200 million estate. Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. I think if anyone looks to um, a brand that gets it right, it's Tiffany. You get to walk into the same building. You get the same blue box. The uh, staff are courteous, friendly, and knowledgeable. And whether you're buying a $100 key ring or a $100,000 diamond, you're going to be treated somewhat similarly. Now, obviously, there's maybe more money that has to be put behind the $100 million diamond, but the experience for that consumer for whom that keyring is so meaningful and important should equal that of the $100,000 diamond. Why not? And I think if we aspire to that in the real estate profession, we will get a lot more respect from uh, the consumer. You know, I couldn't agree more, Leonard. And uh, you know, when I first started in business, um, I, I wasn't really trained. I was sort of just thrown to the wolves and told to figure it out. That was, uh, yeah, and, and that was, I think, in 1996 or thereabout, um, maybe late, I think, it was, I think it was early 96. And so one of my first memorable clients was a young man who was graduating from Columbia University. And I rented him an apartment on Christopher Street for approximately $1,300. And that young man went on to found uh, one of, if not the singular most successful companies coming out of uh, Silicon Alley here in New York. And it's now a publicly traded company. Uh, he's going on to do, you know, four or five transactions, buys and sells, uh, totaling approximately $80 million from one person. Okay. So that's a lesson that you never know who the person is on the other end of the line and what they're capable of. But if you treat each person just as the customer at Tiffany buying a gift for, you know, his first love of, you know, a keychain or a bracelet, and if you treat them right, they'll remember you and that experience and they'll come back to you to buy the $100,000 ring as well as a number of others in between that. Or they might have a friend 
who has $100,000 for a ring. And they say, you have to go to Tiffany because that experience was so amazing. I think one has to um, really, as agents specifically, be reminded that when you speak to an individual, you're not just speaking to that one person, you're speaking to their sphere of influence. And people forget that. My career started because of a building I lived in where when I messaged and spoke to the 70 owners in the building, I recognized I was probably speaking to 7,000 people, not 70 people, because each person probably knows at least 100 people professionally and socially. And I think if one really uh, acknowledges that, then marketing becomes a lot more fun. And it also really empowers you and motivates you to be the very best you can be under all circumstances. And I think as professionals, that's what we should be doing. I think doctors do it. I think most lawyers do it. I think most professionals actually treat um, their patients and their clients equally. And I think real estate has to do the same. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think what you're describing is really the exponential experience, right? It's not just the experience that you're in in the moment, but you know, live your life exponentially in terms of the, uh, the reverberation of, of that experience. It's almost like a tuning fork. Right. And, Absolutely. And the approach that you take with the individual that's in front of you can either help or hurt not only them, but you. Well, the best public relations as a real estate professional is the one on one experience everyone experiences with you. That is the ultimate public relations. You can speak to your sales successes and a million other things, but nothing ever will beat that one on one experience that is a good experience. That's public relations gold. That's right. And we should keep this in mind, not only with our, our customers and clients, but also with our colleagues, right? I had an experience a few years ago where I had the chance to do a transaction with a colleague from a different company. And I treated him with respect, dignity, uh, and I really appreciated his professionalism. The transaction closed. We both went about our lives. Uh, we weren't in touch regularly. And uh, I didn't keep track of his career to be totally candid. Um, but I got a call about eight weeks ago from this gentleman who has since gone on to great success. He's no longer uh, in production, but he's now in management in a different city. And wouldn't you know, he remembered our experience in that transaction and he referred an investor to me and an institutional owner who has 10 units to sell. He referred those units to me. And so we're going to be launching them once the stay at home order is lifted. And all because of one transaction that I, you know, I, I treated the right way and everything worked out well. And, you know, we came away with, with admiration and respect for one another. Well, how many years have you been in the industry now? What, 23, 24? Uh, 24, yeah. The 24 years means that you've been patient and strategic about building a career. I think the biggest problem most people have is the impatience of wanting it overnight. And I can understand that impatience because number one, we have to eat. And number two, who wouldn't want to be an overnight success? It's wonderful. But I think slowly and methodically building a career over time delivers extraordinary results if you stick to it and you have principles and are professional all the way through. Wow. Such great advice, Leonard, from a true professional. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. Um, any parting words for us? Um, you know, there's an old South African saying that says, Alles sal rechkom. And 
it translates to everything's going to be fine. <laughs> I think that's the only thing I can say. Everything's going to be fine. Love it. Leonard, thanks so much. Leonard Steinberg from Compass, everyone. If you have any questions for Leonard, obviously we had some technical difficulties today and weren't able to post this live, but I will post the recording onto our uh, Ruben Team Facebook page. Uh, this has been the latest episode of Ruben Special. Leonard Steinberg, thanks again, Leonard. Thank you. Have a good one.